Thank you, everyone, for joining the Words Over Ice show. I'm Ray. I'm your host. Our guest today is Eric Sean, who has a very uplifting and motivating story. The guy went from the foster care system to drug addiction, homelessness, to being a motivator and owning his own business. So really positive stuff. It's going to be a good one today. Uh, be sure you're on Instagram following us and showing love there at the Words Over Ice show. You can find everything we have on our website, wordsovericeshow.com. Be sure to continue the support and the donations. Head over to patreon.com slash the Words Over Ice show. All right, let's get to the show. Join me in welcoming our guest, Mr. Eric Sean. What's up, Eric? How's it going, man? Things are going good, man. I, I uh, really appreciate the um, the time that uh, you've given me to be on the show. Oh, dude, it's my absolute pleasure. Honestly, I'm happy to have you on here. You've got a a great story. Honestly, it's going from the foster care system to homelessness to drug addiction to owning your own business and being a motivator. Honestly, it's it's one that I really wanted everyone to hear about. So let's dive in. What I'm where I want to start is the foster care system because I know that can be really tough on people growing up. So why don't you take me back to that time and what was going on? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it, it was it was uh, a crazy period of my life. My um, my mother had some struggles of her own um, when she was pregnant with me. You know, she was uh, sixteen years old, which is hard enough. Then she had a drug issue on top of that, um, and then she ended up in a juvenile detention facility. And I was actually born when she was in the juvenile detention facility. And so the way the state works is, is obviously you become a ward of the state and they put you in foster care. So I actually entered into foster care when I was five days old um, and stayed in foster care, two different foster homes until I was nine years old. Um, okay. And, you know, thank God for the foster care system. There's there's great ones and there's there's not so great ones. And, you know, my experience wasn't um, real, real great. I, you know, any type of abuse you can think of, I think I went through by the time I was nine years old. Um, so it was a, a difficult period of my life, which kind of set the course for everything else. Yeah, it's a shitty program. I mean, it's it needs some attention. It needs some work, definitely. But I know there's a lot of foster parents who want to do it just for the money. So was that your experience? Was it the guardians who were the problem? Um, it, it, most of the situation, I mean, the, the, the situations, there were really only maybe five or six kids, but I don't really think that the, uh, that they, they did it because of their love for children. Um, I think that they did it for monetary gain. Um, I think they may have cared about kids, but, but they, they weren't the greatest nurturers. Right. Um, you know, I, I can tell you a situation when I was, uh, I, went, I had a lot of emotional issues when I was young. So to give you an example of um, when you got in trouble or when I got in trouble, my foster mom would, she hate, she hated to hear kids cry, but she believed in discipline. And back then whoopings were, you know, you that's the way you discipline kids. So she came up with a system. She came up with a system where she would have me lay on my stomach. She would put a pillow over my head <clears throat> and she would sit on the pillow. And when she felt like I was punished enough, then you know, I was punished enough. So that way she didn't have to hear me. And she felt like she taught me the lesson that she thought I should learn. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mental, emotional, physical, sexual, you know, I went through all kind of different, all that when I was in foster care. Wow. Jesus Christ, man. That's fucking crazy. How old were you when this was happening? Uh, I had to be, that was my 
first foster home. No, it was my second foster home. So I was between the ages of seven and nine. Dude, I would have been freaking out. That's got to be scary shit at that age. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and besides that, it was it, it wasn't even so much the the physical. It was just the mental because you know my mom had had uh, I, I, my mom in my mind because I didn't know all the details back then. I just knew that I was in foster care and I didn't have a mom or a dad like everybody else. Um, so you know, I already had a lot of self hate um, and a lot of um, uh, shame because I felt like I ran my mom away. Right. Um, and then, you know, I was in a situation where I didn't feel like anybody really cared about me. So it was it was scary. Um, I felt alone. And more so than that, I just kind of felt different than everybody else. Of course you are. I mean, that's a lot to take on as an eight or nine year old kid. Absolutely. You know, what was the dynamic with your mother? I know she was locked up at this time, but were you in contact with her? What was what was going on there? I, I met my mom one time. Um, and you know, when you're a kid, you, you, or or whatever age you are over time, your memories kind of get distorted. So the best of my knowledge, I met my mom one time when I was five years old because she had in her mind that she was going to get her life together and regain custody of me. So I met her when I was five. It was, um, uh, a visitation with my social worker. So my social worker left. I was talking to my mom for a couple of minutes and I called my foster mom, mom, because that was the only mom that I knew. Okay. Obviously that upset her. She slapped me. They ended the visit. And that was the only time I ever saw her. That is so crazy, man. You've never seen her again your entire life. No, I ended up probably about 18 years ago. I searched for her. I found my grandmother. My mom had actually died. She had died when I was uh, I would have been a senior in high school. So she had died, you know, quite many years before I found my grandmother. So I never, never met her. You know, and if that were me, I think I would have rather not have met her. Cause then at least that way, my only memory wouldn't be a negative one of her slapping me. That's fucked up. And through this time you were in how many homes? Uh, two different homes. Okay. So you're in two different homes. You had this bad altercation with your mom and then you're finally adopted. So how did that? Yeah. Out? When I was nine years old, I was adopted. Um, and it was, it, let me say this, my adopted father, because it was a single father, he was the most loving individual that I could ever possibly meet. I mean, the truest definition of altruism. I mean, he loved people. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, you know, I grew up in, 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 um, in the ghetto, um, in, in poor housing situations when I was in foster care. Um, when I was a nine, I was adopted by this single white homosexual man. So I was moved from the ghetto into a, a fairly affluent, um, all white neighborhood. I think there was one or two other black families in the neighborhood. Okay. Um, I was sent from, you know, I, I had gone to the public school system up until I was nine, never great in school, never liked school, um, never really was, had anything to do with religion. So I was sent to this white Catholic school. Um, and so, you know, you got this kid who already felt like he didn't fit in. Um, and now I really didn't fit in not only just because I was different because I didn't have a mom and dad, but now I was different because even color wise, I didn't match anybody there. Right. You know? Um, and, and, and again, thank God for my father because I learned how to speak. I learned how to read. I learned how to write. I learned a lot of skills that later in life would help me that I probably wouldn't have learned had I been in my 
previous situation. So there are some good ones out there, thank God, and I'm happy you found one. How long did that last for? Were you with him for a while? Yeah, I stayed with him until, um, you know, until I was 17, then I moved out when I was 17. We had a relationship until he passed. He passed, I think, about five years ago. Well, I'm happy he had a positive influence on you, because I know it was rough. And you were, what area were you living in at this time? Uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. And Cleveland, as we all know, is not the nicest city, and it's got his rough spots. Oh, yeah. So I can relate. I was actually, I grew up in a, not a horrible neighborhood, but I was in Chicago. Yep. And I was in a neighborhood actually where I was getting shot at. Literally, like I'd walk down the street and I was getting shot at. So my parents took me out of there and they moved me to the okay. suburbs, all the way to this place called Bartlett, which was just nothing but cornfields and just, you know, white suburbia to the T. You know what I mean? It was just a different, a different world to me because I was growing up in the city where, you know, there's a lot of gangs and whatnot. And I go out to this quiet place where it's just families and just a lot of space and just very quiet. So I can attest to the culture shock and it's just night and day difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know about you, but I fuck it. I hated it when I first got there because it's just, it's something so different that you just, you don't know what to do. And especially, and I'm not trying to say I, I went through what you went through because you got it, you know, you, you went through a lot worse than I did, but I know there's a big difference and I know there's a, there's a transition period and to get acclimated is tough. It's very tough. So how was that experience for you? How was that transition? How was getting acclimated? Um, it was um, the best way that I can describe it is, is that I became a very good chameleon, mm -hmm. which really wasn't that hard because, again, I, I completely disliked myself. Um, and everybody has a need to fit in or to, to socialize. So I just began to try to be like the people that were around me. Um, you know, so I, I lost more of myself, but I learned how to say the right things and be quiet when to be quiet and, um, you know, fit, fit in. Yeah. I mean, you want to be liked, which a lot of people do. But one thing I keep hearing you say is that you disliked yourself. And I just want to know what, what, besides the obvious, what is the root of that? Yeah, it was, it was, um, cause when I, when I was growing up, there was a saying that when you're, when your mom no longer wants you then you're useless because moms generally have a tendency to, regardless of what you do, they always love you. You know, I mean, you can, you can steal from your mom, you can do anything and moms have this nurturing ability. So, um, you know, the fact that I didn't have a mom and then the reason I moved from my first foster home to my second foster home was because my first foster mom had died. So now in my mind, I had, ran away because I, I didn't understand death when I was, you know, seven years old. Yeah, of course um, not. You know, so in my mind, now I had lost two moms. So not only had I had one mom who didn't want me, in my mind, I was thrown into a situation because the, another mom didn't want me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had just that by, by that time, by the time I was nine years old, I had decided that I had no, no value um, and, and pretty much hated every fiber uh, of my body, of my being. Yeah, and it's hard to build that if you don't have someone to look up to, like a parent figure, and especially if everyone's putting you down your whole life. But you had a foster parent. Did you ever talk to him about this? Oh no, and and God bless him because by the time I showed up, he had no idea what he was getting. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was I had all kind of emotional issues, um, anger, rage, fury. I didn't understand a lot of stuff, and and he was a special ed teacher. Okay. And so, you know, and, and he wasn't very well because, I mean, most of the time men aren't really feelings. I mean, we're not feeling creatures. So, yeah, he 
probably tried to sit down and talk to me, um, but by that time, I, I, I just I was so lost. I I, I couldn't listen to him. Um, you know, and and then he was, and and I've never had a racial bone in my body, but I didn't know how to deal with the situation. Well, how the hell could you? And I had no idea. You know, he carried himself differently than the men that I was used to being around. Um, he 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 talked different. Uh, it was just it was a shock. I had no idea how to process it. Yeah, I mean, I I can imagine. And how could you know how to deal with this? I mean, you're so young. You know, I mean, it, right. even in a in a stable environment, that young is hard to process anything you're going through. You know what I mean? Even as a teenager. So I could only imagine after having the background you did. So so all this eventually led you to drugs and alcohol, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was when I was um uh. Uh, again, because I, I absolutely hated myself. I felt like that I was unworthy. I wasn't good enough. And, you know, back, this kind of goes along with the questions of, um, you know, how did I acclimate to the school? You know, when you feel bad about you, well, regardless of however you feel about yourself, water seeks its own level. So, you know, I, I was able to find the kids that acted out like I acted out. Um, that uh, uh, talked when they weren't supposed to talk, that were kind of rebellious. And so I connected with them. I felt more comfortable with them. And they happened to be, they happened to be um, smoking weed. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, people always think in Catholic schools that (laughs) Catholic kids are good. I I had the best drugs in Catholic schools. They're some of the worst ones. (laughs) They just got better drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I just, I I did what they did, you know, and I remember the first time that, that that I got high with them, I, all of the feelings of not being good enough, the inadequacies, they all left. I felt like everything in the world was fine. And, and, and it, yeah, I fell in love with it, you know? Um, and so when you fall in love with something, you want to talk to them every day, see them every day. So I fell in love with getting high. And so I wanted to be around it every day. I wanted to smoke it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to drink every day. And so by the time that, um, you know, I was 14 years old, I was in and out of drug treatment centers on three different occasions. Because again, my adoptive father wanted, he had, he, he loved me and he wanted me to be something and he didn't know how to deal with me. Right. You know? Yeah. So he went and sought help. Yeah. Yeah. Which most people do when they don't know how to deal with someone, especially a teenager, cause you can't relate. A lot of people go and seek help, but so from smoking weed to being admitted, that's, that's a leap. It's a big jump. Yeah, exactly. It's a big jump. So I'm interested, like, how did that happen? What, so from smoking weed every day and drinking, a lot of kids do. I know I did. I wasn't every day and it wasn't to the extent of what you were doing. Maybe not for the reasons, yeah. um, but a lot of kids do. But how did it get from, you know, smoking a joint and having some beers to your foster parent being so worried and so concerned that he had to admit you into a, into a facility? The, you know, the, the, um, the other thing, again, because I was a chameleon mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I was what anything that that um, people said, hey, try this. I was a kid. That, I was like Mikey. You know what right. I mean? I mean, I would I would I would try anything. So the kids would, um, you know, steal drugs from their parents um, uh, medicine cabinet and bring it to me and I would try it. And then I would report back to them. What, what it did. And then we do, we, we either did it or we didn't, but you know, I, I was willing at that time to try anything because again, I just wanted to escape me. I wanted to get away from me. Right. Um, it became an everyday thing. I was already not doing good in school um, because I had all these emotional issues. 
you know, it was a Catholic school by that time because I didn't have a mom. I, I, I didn't really care about God. I knew God didn't like me, so I really didn't care for him. So I didn't want to learn anything Catholic schools. I stopped going to school. Um, I started hanging out with these friends all day. And, you know, it just my my behavior was already bad. But now, I mean, it, it had completely became unacceptable. Um, you know, I, I started getting into a lot of legal issues or, or issues with the police because, you know, I'm coming home high and my dad's got an issue with it. And so we're fighting because, again, all this anger has got to go somewhere. Right. Um, so finally, I think that he had talked to somebody and um, this was this was in the 80s. And in the 80s, drug treatment was very popular. I mean, it was one of the things that all insurance companies covered. Mm-hmm. So everybody, a lot of people who normally wouldn't have been in treatment, that was like the thing to do. So the first time that I went to treatment, I, I had no, um, no idea that anything was really wrong, uh-huh. you know? So I went for 30 days, paid no attention to any of it. Just kind of went, showed up, um, until I could leave. And that's pretty typical. I feel for like drug centers, a lot of people, especially when you're forced to go, you're just not ready to do it. Right. And, and I think those places, Correct. if they work, uh, I, I've never been to one, but if they if they do work, you have to be the one that wants to go. You have to be open minded enough and ready to change. Otherwise, it's like you said, you're you're in there, you pay no attention, you're in and out, and you're right back to what you were doing before. Correct. Yep. And that's exactly what it was. Exactly what it was. So I came back, and um, it was a crazy story because when I was in treatment, I was in treatment, and everybody was talking about how it was a life and death disease. Which I didn't. All I heard was life and death. And, you know, if you don't stay sober, you're going to die. And so I went to my first um, AA meeting and a guy stood up and he led. I mean, he's told his story mm-hmm. and he literally died as soon as he got done. Wait, what? Yeah. So picture this, right? I'm in treatment for 30 days and all they're talking about is if you don't stay sober, you're going to die. I go to my first AA meeting, the guy talks and he dies. That gave me the perfect excuse that I had. It wasn't the place for me. He died like on the spot in front of you on the spot. As soon as he got done talking, he sat down and died. Yep. What? Remember to this day. That's crazy. What were you thinking? I got to get out of here and go get high. Yeah. Right. Get me the <laughs> hell out of here. Jesus. I had a better chance of living being high than here. That's a fucking wonky experience, man. <laughs> yeah. So the guy fucking dies crazy, man. But. So throughout all this, the in and out of the facilities, the doing drugs, you know, the getting in trouble and all that, I've always been interested to know and like what the real, like what the real feeling is there. Cause I've been in trouble before, but I've never been in serious legal trouble. Never had real big trouble with addictions. So I've always wanted to know like someone who goes through that, how does it like inside, do you know what you're doing? Do you know that it's wrong or is this something that just you're oblivious to and it feels right at the moment? It, it, it absolutely feels right. Really? Um, it, it feels right. It's, it's medicine. Back then, it was my medicine because when I wasn't drunk or I wasn't high, then I realized how much I hated myself. Um, and I realized how bad the world in my mind had treated me and how everybody had abandoned me and how nobody was there to support me. Nobody understood me. But when I was high, I didn't think about any of that. So the fact that my dad had issues with it, he had issues with it. I didn't have issues with it because it was my medicine. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and and if he understood me better, he wouldn't have a problem with me getting high. You know, my my teachers wouldn't she wouldn't care if if I came to class and I was a little little drunk or smelled like alcohol, because if they understood me, they would they would be glad I showed up to class. You know, it 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 almost changes the way you think. And so everybody else becomes the problem. You're not the problem. Everybody else is the problem. And if the world would just listen to you and do things the way that you wanted them to do it, the way it really should be done, then nobody would have any problems. I mean, it just changes the whole way that you think. And that's got to be a crazy internal battle within yourself. Absolutely. Yes. Cause you're sitting here now that I'm understanding it a little bit better. You really, you're oblivious. Honestly, you think you're yeah. doing something good and that's right that feels good but everyone's telling you no that's got to be a absolutely and it's the only thing that made me feel good the absolute only thing that made me feel good so in my mind you're trying to tell me again that you don't want me to feel good because you're saying the one thing i found to help me feel good is bad yeah and they're trying to protect you obviously but you on the other hand this makes you feel good so it's just kind of a battle because no one's understanding each other's side at all Absolutely. Right. And it's just an uphill battle for you and you just can't win. So that's a lot, man. You go from, you know, a mother who slaps you and then a, a foster mother who, who puts a pillow over your head and just everyone's telling you no. Correct. Right. And it's just a lot of negativity yep. your entire life. So to take all that, because I know you went from that, what transpired through high school? Because t- in talking to you before, I know you did find a kind of a path and were clean for a while. So what transpired through high school and where, who did you start hanging out with new people or what was it that made you, you know, kind of see the light, if you will. So after my third treatment center, um, I, uh, stayed sober for, I had like eight years where I, where I wasn't drinking. And a couple of the things that happened is, is that, so I found a whole group of people who kind of, they didn't necessarily understand me, but, they had some, they had their own problems. And so I found a group of people that I could talk my problems over with. And, and we had, we had some stuff in common. I didn't feel so much alone and they all went to these AA meetings. So great years. I went to these AA meetings with them because of the social socializing and the camaraderie. Um, and, and just, just for the friendships. Um, so all through high school and, and thank God for it, because otherwise I wouldn't have graduated high school all through high school. Um, I, I was, not drinking. Um, and I began, I think to like myself a little bit more. Um, I began to feel like I had a little bit of value. Um, so when I was 18, well in high school, here's what I realized because around, you know, 15, 16, you start to notice if you haven't noticed them before you start to notice females. Right. And in high school, I weigh a hundred pounds soaking wet. I mean, if the wind's blowing, I got to find a tree because it's going to blow me down the street. (laughs) And so crazy because you're a big, (laughs) but here's why that's how it all started. Because I realized that the women in my mind that I wanted to know, they all wanted to know the football players. That's why I played football. So I I, I figured out I had to, I had to get my weight up. I had to start working out. And so I, when I was 18, this is, you know, all through high school, I was the skinny, scrawny kid. So as soon as I got to high school, I went and I um, found a gym and I started working out. 
And I immediately, I think, fell in love with it. The first sign that my body had changed at all, my arms, I could notice a little bit of definition or, you know, I was, I was bench pressing and my, I was getting stronger. The, the first sign that something was changing, it, it, it was, it was almost like a different form of that same medicine. Yeah. Okay. The difference is, is that it, I actually felt like I had some control. I was actually in control of changing something in my life. And it was for the first time that I had felt that way. You know, when I was younger, I went where people said to go, you know, I went to this home. If they said, go there, I live with this person. Um, I, it was always adults that were making all the decisions for me. One thing that I always told myself is when I grow up, my life will be good then because I'll be in control. That wasn't true, but this was kind of a symbol of it because when I went to the gym, I felt good. And I became, I fell in love with it. It was the first time that I felt like that I could change my outlook on life and on myself. And the gym will do that. And it does it for a lot of people. I know I'm one of them. You know, you get in there, you start sweating, you're working out, you're working on your physical and your mental at the same time. And it's a stress reliever and the endorphins are being released. It's just, it's good overall for everyone. Everyone should do it. And it's people as a whole, you need to feel good about something. You know what I mean? You need to have a purpose in life whether that be work or, a, you know, a project you're doing or something creative you're doing on the side, just us as a whole, yeah. we need to have purpose in life. And for you to find something that you feel like you're in control of and it's actually making you feel good rather than the stuff you were using before, you know, drugs are making you feel good, but it's a downer. You know what I mean? It's nothing you're doing that's productive. And it's really becoming a common theme that I'm hearing in these turnaround stories is people are finding physical activity to really help. So I'm glad you found it. I liked it so much that I actually started working at the gym. It's a positive environment, of course. And so I started working there. I started working there selling memberships. One thing Mm -hmm. that has always been present in my life ever since I was a kid, even regardless of anything that I went through, I've always been a very loving person. I've I've always wanted to, um, by nature, do something to make somebody else feel better. Um, and so I started working at the gym and I, and, and my goal was, was I wanted to share this excitement of this new thing that I found because nobody else knew that if you worked out, you'd feel better. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, I, but it was like something I felt like that I discovered. Um, and so I wanted to share it with everybody. So I started working at the gym and started training people and selling memberships. And it, it was just, I felt like my life was, was slowly changing for the better. Um, so I did that. I worked at gyms for, um, and, and managed gyms and did training for, for about a 10 year stretch for this one company. Okay. And you were sober for the majority of this time or how long? Correct. For most of it. Yep. And you relapsed when? I think the last, the, the last couple of years working there, um, mm-hmm. actually, no, I was sober for a couple of years. And, and then what I realized is, was that because now I had a whole new group of friends and these friends, after they got off work, they all went to the bar. Um, you know, and so we would, we would, we would leave work and we'd go to the bar and we'd drink and we'd get high and, um, you know, but, but things didn't get real bad for a long time though. I mean, things were pretty manageable for years, you know, cause I was going to work. I was making money. I felt kind of good about myself. Um, now the drinking is just to celebrate. Um, you know, the good day at work or whatever it was. So that kind of went on for many years where things were kind of stable. They weren't good, but they were stable. 
But they were better than what you were used to. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Right. Yep. So would you say you had an addictive personality or was this more to drown out feelings and emotions that you had? Um, I mean, they go hand in hand, but what was the driving force? I, I think, I, I think that once here's I believe that alcoholism and, and, and drug addiction and all that is a spiritual sickness. There's something missing spiritually and everything, everything becomes about you. Um, and when anything becomes about you, you, you just become out of sync with any, with everything. And so I, I think because I had, because I had that spiritual sickness, eventually nothing would ultimately work. So even though I felt good about working out and I felt good about the gym and I felt good about my performance of work and I felt good about helping people, that sickness was still there, you know, and the medicine that worked before ultimately would show back up. Okay. Did that make sense? Yeah, it does. You're, I mean, you're, you're masking the pain. You're finding a distraction. You're doing other things to disguise it, but you're not figuring it out. Correct. Right. So you have this hole in your, you know, within you, your soul, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and you have this void that you need to figure out and really get to the root of so you can understand what's going yeah. on. Yeah. I had found a good distraction for a while, but the distraction soon wasn't a good enough distraction. Gotcha. I'm with you. So you're, you're distracted, you're kind of masking the void, but ultimately that sickness is still bubbling underneath you. So it's going to, it's going to come back out. So take me back to that time. What happened and how did you get, how did you fall back into it? Um, I think around that time I stopped working for this gym, um, because I kind of felt like that it was, they just wanted to sell memberships. It was a high pressure sales thing. Um, and you were only basically as valuable as the job that you did. You know, you have a bad, a bad week. You, somebody's yelling at you. You could have had a great week the week before. I just didn't feel like that. They really cared about the, the members or anybody really gaining any type of success or change or creating change within an an individual. So I ended up leaving there. I went to work for another company. Um, then I kind of bounced around, um, you know, so as I'm bouncing around, I'm drinking more, mm-hmm. uh, I'm getting high more, all that anger and that resentment and, um, you know, mad at everybody because if they only understood and they only did things the way I wanted them to do and everybody's doing this to me, um, you know, so I, it, it fueled my drinking and things slowly got worse. Things slowly became more unmanageable. Okay. Um, and the crazy thing is, is, is that it happened. And, and I know it happens for most alcoholics and addicts the same way. It happens so slowly that you really aren't even aware that it's happening. Yeah, you're just slowly slipping back you into know, it. You're slipping into it and you don't even see it. Okay. You don't even see it. Um, so what ended up happening? Um, so by, so, you know, time kind of passes on, I get to, um, uh, a point where I am, uh, managing clubs for, uh, other people. I moved to Dayton for a little while. Then I moved to Atlanta. Then I completely leave the business Okay. and I'm doing some other stuff and I'm sleeping on people's couches and I'm sleeping in hotel rooms that, that they've gotten for me. And, um, you know, ultimately it gets to the point where I started doing harder drugs. Um, you know, cocaine became a big thing for me that I did for a couple of years. And once that kind of came into the picture, things just 
looks like a snowball and a, you know a boulder going down a hill it just started moving progressively faster um you know i'm in atlanta and and you know i say that i'm homeless because if you don't have an address you don't have a place where you get mail you're pretty much homeless yeah you know um i never i never had to sleep in a shelter um but it got to the point where one day i had no money i had no food and the wendy's dumpster looked uh it made sense to me that they had to have some food in there um and the whole progression up to that point again i could always mentally justify that i never saw it coming i mean it just happened so slowly when you were in the back of that wendy's in that alley picking through a trash can for food to eat did you self-reflect at all at what was going on in your life not at all not at all. I was just glad I had some food. I think that I think, you know, I don't remember the feeling exactly, but I there I'm sure that there was some shame there. Um uh, I'm sure that, that in hindsight I had to wonder how I got there. Um yeah. But because of where my mind was at the time, I was kind of able to put it out of my mind very quickly. So was that the routine, you know, wake up looking for drugs, looking to get high for your next fix, then trying to find food and a place to crash? Was this like the meaning of life for you? Absolutely. My meaning of life was to survive, to get high, Mm -hmm. to figure out something to do that day. Um, You know, when I was a little bit younger, it was to get high, to hang out with people and have fun and socialize. And now I really didn't care about doing too much socializing. I had maybe one or two people that I spent my time with. That had to be exhausting. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you're not aware of it when you're in it. It's like, you're just in a constant fog. Right. You know? And the crazy thing is, is even, even when I realized things were bad, it was never so much about me. It was always about what people had done to me. You know, it was always never my fault. Okay. And when did that end up changing for you? It changed for me. I think when I, um, when I got sober and, you know, you would think that the whole garbage can situation would have clicked and I would have said, I got to make a change. But that, that, that didn't occur. I, I think, you know, I ended up moving back to Cleveland. I was back in Cleveland for five, six, seven years, maybe, maybe a little bit longer um, because the time just, it all kind of blended together. Right. Um, you know, I had a, had just bought a house. I mean, things were actually at a good point. It occurred to me something was wrong. I had just bought a house. I was. I remember I had um, friends over my house for like a week straight. Every night we would sit around. We'd stay up all night. We, we, we would get high. Um, and there was this one night where everybody had left. Mm-hmm. And it was like this moment of silence. And I remember there was this, this song and, and it, it was a Tupac song and I played it over and over and over and over. And it was called better days. And, um, you know, I, I would just listen to it over and over and over for like two hours straight. And, 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 and something happened. It was like at that moment, I knew I, I, I couldn't live the way that I was living. I knew that I really didn't want to die. So I, I was at this, this crossroads and I just, I just asked God for help. Um, so you were it, having this internal battle. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was an internal battle and it was a, a, a moment where there was no more, I couldn't come up with one more lie to tell myself. Mm-hmm. I couldn't come up with one more excuse, one more plan, one more plot, one more scheme. I couldn't come up with 
anything that I can, I, I lost complete faith of myself at that moment. And that was a changing moment. And what did you do at that point? So the, um, the next day I went to an AA meeting and either that night or within a week, I ran into a guy who I knew from when I was going to AA when I was younger. And I noticed that something was different about him and he was, he talked weird. I mean, he, he just, his language was, I mean, it was the English language, but the words that he put together were words that put together that I'd never heard. I, you know, um, and so I became intrigued by him uh, because I couldn't figure him out. I've always, I've always had to stay where I want to figure out. I want to understand. So that way, when you talk to me, I, I know what you're talking about, but I, I, he was just talking for a whole different language. It seemed like, mm-hmm. and he turned out to be this Buddhist sensei. And, um, Ultimately, he was he, he he was able to help me realize that uh, that I was a spiritual person, and he was able to help me to realize that it wasn't about anything that anybody had ever done to me. Uh, it wasn't about the fact that I didn't have a mom, or I didn't have a dad, or I didn't have any of that. <clears throat> but the biggest problem was was me. And that was the, excuse me, that was the changing moment in my life was when I, he helped me to realize that not, that I was the problem, but even greater than that, that if I was the problem, that meant that I could only be my own solution. Yeah. And once you realize that it's very, very powerful, but what was going on in your head and your emotions at this point? It was, it was very freeing. I think it was one of the most freeing moments ever, even more so than the moment of clarity. Cause there was a lot of freeing. I felt free after that moment of clarity. Like I could, I could stop, I could give up and, and I didn't have to fight anymore to a small degree. But when I, when he told me that and it made sense to me and it clicked, it was a whole different level of surrender. Um, because he told me that nothing else around me had the change for me to be happier, to find happiness. It was just freeing. It was freeing. And I realized that I had been fighting all the wrong people that I had been blaming all the wrong people. And all I had to do was really look inside and understand myself and um, really figure out who I was. And that's really not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to do at all. Um, And the hardest part is, is that most people really don't want to do it because it's hard to face truths about yourself. It is. The hardest thing in the world is to face the truth that um, you're not perfect. And when was this again? This was 15 years ago. 15 years ago. So 15 years ago. You faced yourself, you faced truth, you confronted that void within yourself, and you've been, you've been doing great things since. That's a powerful, that's a very powerful story. I'm, I'm glad you're out there talking to everyone about it and, and, and putting it out in the world and doing the things you're doing because it just shows you know, a lot of people don't, and we lose a lot of people you know, to the disease and, and to, to death and, and all types of things because they never come to that realization that you are able to. Yeah. So it's, it's, 
It's awesome, man. Honestly, su- super powerful. I'm, I'm almost speechless at how far you've come. I'm proud of you. If that if that means anything to you, oh, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. <laughs> so, so 15 years. Have you had any slip ups? How do you, how do you how do you stay sober? Do you have any desire like ever? I would imagine there's got to be some hiccups here and there. So no, here's the thing. So June June 10th of, of this year, I, I, it'll be 16 years since I've I, I drank or done drugs or anything. Um, I can honestly say that from the moment that I had that conversation with him, it it was almost like the desire completely left because ultimately what I was just always looking for is I was looking for a solution and the plan that he little did I know then, but the plan that he ultimately helped me put together, which was a plan of self-discovery was a far greater and more powerful medicine than drugs and alcohol ever was. And I always tell people that if that, that like, for instance, people who deal with food, food is, is medicine for them. You know, food that dealing with stress is medicine. So you can't just tell an addict to not drink or you can't just tell, you know, a, a food addict not to eat, uh, do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different than what than, than how they should be eating to live unless you have an equal or greater medicine to offer them. Right. He gave me he, he introduced me to the most powerful medicine that I've ever experienced in my life, far greater than any drug that I ever did, any drunk that I ever experienced that the desire left. And I can't even imagine today. I can't imagine today being drunk or being high. I would almost feel like that if I drank, a great part of me would die. And that's that spiritual part that I've, that, that I've developed over the years. Because that's all I ever, I ever lacked. That's all I ever really wanted. I just didn't know. You know, so all this time, I was like this great spiritual messenger. I just went to the wrong address. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, honestly. But let's let's fast forward now to where you're at now. So all this happened for a reason, right? So you took all this and you learned from it and you became better and you did something with it, which is awesome. Which is what my favorite part of the story. So what's going on now? I um, you know, so I I I was unemployable um, when I got sober. Uh, I was at um. And, and, and it's very strange. I just want to kind of put together how everything fell together because I had very little to do with it. Sure. Um, I happened to meet this lady in, 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 at an A meeting. Um, and at some point, I, I, I did a lot of painting. I was a good, I was a good painter, um, home remodeling, that type of stuff. So I met this lady. She wanted me to help her move. I helped her move. Her landlord showed up. Um, her landlord, she said, uh, Eric knows how to paint. Her landlord says, well, I got a job for you. I want you to paint my living room or paint my kitchen. I show up, I paint his kitchen. I do, I guess, a good enough job at it. He says, well, I have four properties. What I want you to do is I'll give you the keys. There was a couple more jobs that I did for him. He said, I'll give you the keys to all of them. And I'll just, because I'm trying to sell them. So what I'll do is I'll have you do little stuff all the time with them. So you'll basically manage them for me. Okay. He happened to be a realtor. He did a, he did this call out or whatever they do to let other realtors know when they find good good work. Mm-hmm. Um, that he from that I met this realtor, the top realtor in my area. Um, she kept me busy doing anything involving a house for three years. Now all this is just falling together from me offering to help this lady move. Um, I started a company, um, called, uh, elite properties, price management. 
Um, and I started doing property management. I did that for a couple of years. I always had this training thing. Though. I always like training people. I always liked helping people because I've always believed that we are basically um, trivalent individuals, mind, body, and spirit. And if any, t- any leg of the table is off, we can't balance good. And so the physical thing was always the first thing that I wanted to help people do. So I wanted to start my own trading business. So I took all the money. I bought one piece of equipment, put it in my basement, got a client, started training him, took the money from him, bought another piece, ended up with 10 pieces of equipment in my basement, stopped doing the property management, opened a gym. Um, and today, my, my it's it's been... 13, 14 years, you know, today I have like 80 pieces of equipment and God knows how many um, pounds of free weights and dumbbells and uh, turf. And I mean, it's a, it's a 13,000 square foot training facility. Um, And I don't sell memberships. I just have four trainers that rent space for me and we just do one-on-one training. And it's the most rewarding thing um, that I've ever experienced. And it all came from me offering to help one person move. It's funny how that works though, right? You know, by showing, yeah. You know, somebody once told me, they said that anything in life that is supposed to happen, you don't have to do a lot of work. And if you have to do a lot of work to make something happen, most of the time you'll regret that you ever did that work. Yeah, I agree. And it's, again, it's funny how you, when you, when you finally do figure out yourself, and again, it's not an easy thing to do, but when you figure yourself out and you start to, put good into the world. And it sounds super cliche, right? Everyone says it put good out there and you get good back, but it's really true. When you figure out who you are and what you want to do and what makes you feel good. And you just did something nice for someone and look where you're at now. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd imagine if you go back 25 years, you know, 20 years, whatever it is, and you did something nice for someone at that point in your life, it wouldn't have, you know, dominoes wouldn't have fallen the way they did this time because you just weren't in that place within yourself to realize or to accept and to put, you know, that energy out that you were going to receive ultimately. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is, is that, you know, everything is the law of intent. So if I would have done something nice for somebody 20 years ago, it would have been because I wanted to get something out of it. It wouldn't have been just an act of love to just, you know, be altruistic and give it to them. You know, um, so, you know, I, I got this gym and, and since the gym, I've, uh, now I'm just training part-time and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on doing a lot more motivational speaking and life coaching because those are the other two things that I find to be very rewarding in my life. Um, you know, sharing my story and not even so much my personal story, but just the, the ultimate lesson that I've learned about life. Um, and that is, is that at the end of the day, if you give if you love yourself and you share that love with other people um then the world becomes not a hostile world but a very loving world and so that's kind of what i'm working on lately and if there's anyone that's qualified to do it it's you i see a lot of people taking up that life coaching thing mm-hmm. and which is great I'm all for you know helping everybody out that's it's great and all but a lot of these people haven't haven't been through a ton you know what i mean and, and I, I feel me personally like if you're going to be a life coach, you need to have overcome some serious shit to, to really understand how one really changes. Exactly. So, right. you know what I mean? So, and you have that. So I think you're going to do great things with it. And, and I'm glad you're doing that and reaching out to help other people. And, you know, you, cause you couldn't have, you could have said, Hey, you know, I found myself, I got this gym, let's just make money and 
Yeah. Let's worry about me. You know, you could have very easily done that, but it's awesome that you're putting it back out there and trying to help other people. Honestly, it's, it's, it, I love to see that. And one of the big reasons I wanted you on here, cause I see what you're doing on your, your Instagram and you're spreading the love and, and the motivation. And we just, we need a lot more of that. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, you know, I, I think the world has a tendency to kind of break people. If, if, if you don't really understand one, one thing, and that is, is that everybody goes through something. Um, mm-hmm. But I, a lesson that I've learned is, is that it, nothing that I experience is about me. It's, it's, it's not about me. If it stops at me, like if my childhood had stopped at me, like all this unfair stuff happened and that was it, I would have walked around my whole life being full of anger, full of rage, full of self-hatred, full of hatred to everybody else, and just felt like life was a miserable existence. But what happened ultimately is that I discovered the truth. And the truth is, is that all of those things that occurred in my life, what they really are, are, is there number one lessons that I needed to overcome, whatever the lessons were. But more importantly, I walked away with an amazing amount of unique experience that I can use to help other people. You know, and, and, and not to, you know, I'm not a big Bible uh, person, but am I my brother's keeper? I can't keep my brother if I don't know how to keep him. So all this experience that I have, I have a unique experience to share with other people to give them hope and to help them. So now all this negative thing became amazingly po- uh, positive. So it's no longer bad. It's, 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 it's actually great now because it all has a purpose. Does that make sense? Amen. Absolutely. It makes, and that, it makes complete yeah, sense. And I think a lot of times we forget that and we fall into poor me and, you know, and, and, and we become just angry. And I don't want to be an angry old man. <laughs> Nobody, yeah. wants. Nobody wants that. <laughs> you know? You're too big to be angry. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to be around that. Hey, Eric, Believe me, I wouldn't either. Be. <laughs> you guys, you guys got to go see what I'm talking about. Go, go check him out. Tell everyone, thank you again, man, for sharing that story. Tell everyone um, where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on my Instagram. My Instagram is Eric Sean Coach, um, or you can contact me through my website. Uh, it's Eric Sean at Eric Hyphen Sean. I'm sorry, that's my email. <laughs> my website is Eric Hyphen Sean dot com. And I'll put it, um, yeah, I'll put it all I, in the notes as well. Yeah, I would. I would love to hear from people um, and, and get feedback on whether it was good or bad, or you know, any any positive comments. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, man. Honestly, it was it was great. It was a great message for everyone to hear, and I'm very grateful you came on and that we made the time to do this. And I, I, I'm I'm so so glad that you had me. Listen, I have ADD, so it's hard for me to sit sit still. I can't believe I sat still for this long. <laughs> so I so I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right, buddy. You think that was cool? And that's our show for today. Thanks again to everyone for listening and joining along. Thank you to Eric for sharing that story. Hey, if he can overcome all that, I know you guys can overcome anything you're going through. So be sure to follow him. He's sharing a lot of positivity, a lot of love. If you have any questions for me, reach me at ray at wordsovericeshow.com. That's the email. Thanks again, guys. Till next time.